doing well this morning? I can't hear you. <laughs> I'm going to um, open us in prayer before we go to God's word. Father God, we thank you, Lord, and praise you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, for his finished work, his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you that even now he continues to intercede on our behalf, that our Savior, our God, is not in the grave. He rose again, and he is sitting at your right hand even now. And Father, we pray that your spirit will come, your spirit will come and and take your word, take your perfect holy word and apply it to my heart, apply it to everyone's heart, that he will come, Father, he will do it, and that we will leave here encouraged, we will leave here built up, we'll leave here, Lord, believing the gospel more, trusting you more, loving you more, Father, because of your spirit working in us. Christ in my prayer. Amen. On um, Tuesday night, the president gave the annual State of the Union address. You know, he, he presented reports on the condition of our nation, and he outlined his plans for our country going forward. You know, his plan included things like no more jobs and better education you know, reducing our debt. You know, he was challenging all the people in our country to to work together to better our country. He called the whole nation, along with our leaders, to continue to press on, to continue to press forward in our efforts to better America for future generations. And now this this idea of, of pressing on you know, I was thinking about that all week, pressing on, pressing on as a, as a people to make our nation better. And I was thinking, what, what, what does that mean for us as Christians, to press on in the Christian life? Maybe we need to hear something like that. Maybe we need to be encouraged to press on. We need to hear that on a regular basis. So I came up with this idea of, you know, maybe we need to have a State of the Union address as Christians. You know, we can call it the State of the Christian Life address. What we are to expect the Christian life to be and what we shouldn't expect it to be. You know, I think many believers, we sometimes have unrealistic, unrealistic expectations about the Christian life. Unrealistic expectations. Or we have very low expectations. I don't know where you are this morning in terms of your expectations about the Christian life, what it should be like and what it shouldn't be like. What are yours? You see, some of us have no joy and no peace because of our expectations or what we think the Christian life is supposed to be like. And because it's not that, then we have no joy, we have no peace. So this morning, we're going to deal with expectations. We're going to take a look at a state of the Christian life address given by the Apostle Paul to the church at Philippi. He painted a realistic expectation for the Christian life or what it's supposed to be like. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Philippians chapter 3. 
beginning with verse 12. Philippians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. Here's God's holy word. Not that I have already attained this, I am already made perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if, any, if, it, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. What should we expect the Christian life to be like? That's the question we want to answer this morning. That's the question that Paul answers for us here in this passage. You see, the first expectation of the Christian life is that it's a life lived in tension. It's a life lived in tension. Well, what do you mean by that, Alex? I'm going to tell you. Tension. He says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but one thing, I, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. These words here by Paul, they may seem strange, but, but they're necessary. He admits by this verse that there is tension in the Christian life. One Christian says these, this verse marks the opening of a section where Paul states the tension between his present attainment and his aspirations for the future. His present attainment and his aspirations for the future. The tension in the Christian life is between two realities. The present reality in which we live and the future reality that has not yet come fully. The present life in which you live and the future reality that has not fully come yet. That's the tension. Here in Philippians 3, Paul shows us what this tension looks like in his life. You see, in, in verses 7 through 11, Paul tells us that he counted everything a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He said he counted those, those things rubbish, trash. For the sake of Christ, I count all things lost in order that I may gain Christ, be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness for God that depends upon faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. These verses speak of a future reality that Paul is partially experiencing in this life, not fully experiencing all this. Freedom from having confidence in the flesh. Freedom from having confidence in the flesh. I can't even say the word this morning. Freedom from having confidence in the flesh. He experiences that. Calling all things a loss that interferes with the relationship with Christ. Wanting to know more of Christ. Know his suffering, the power of his resurrection. Living in the righteousness of Christ. These are the things that Paul said he's, he's, look, he's trying to do. But to prevent us and the Philippians from having 
a false impression about him to prevent us from thinking he has reached and attained spiritual completeness and perfection and to, and to prevent us from having false expectations about the Christian life. He balances what he says in verses 7 through 11 with what is found in verses 12 through 16. What does he say? Not that I have already obtained all of this. All the things he just said are have already been made perfect. I have not. Can you see what he's doing here? He's saying, I'm trying to do this, but I have not arrived yet. So don't place me up here. I'm not a super apostle. I still have issues too. The phrase that I have not already attained this points to a past event in Paul's life. His conversion. His conversion. That's what he's saying. That when I was converted, I didn't obtain all of this at my conversion. When Jesus saved me, I didn't attain all this. And my justification by faith did not produce in me perfection. Perfection. It did not. He goes further in saying that he would never be, never be brought to perfection in this life. I was not made perfect, and I'm not going to be made perfect in this life. That's what he's telling us. I'm not going to arrive. I'm not going to ever get to a place in my Christian life where I can say, yep, today is the day that I no longer struggle. No, I have not obtained this. I have not already been made perfect. Paul here acknowledges his own incompleteness in his journey through the Christian life. And at the same time, he also acknowledges that he still tastes, he has a taste for the future reality that is still to come. Both of those go on for both all of us, every day of our life. Incompleteness, but yet you still have a taste of what's to come. You're not going to get the full meal yet. That's still to come in glory. And this is what, is what people call the already not yet of the Christian life. And that creates the tension because we want more. If you're a Christian, you sure want more of Jesus. And so there's a tension because you realize, I still have struggles. It creates the tension. Now, what does this mean for each of us this morning? It means when you become a Christian and make progress in your Christian life, you will never be, you will never be brought to a place of completeness in the sense that you're always going to do everything right, in the sense that you're always going to love Jesus all the time, that you always gonna know and how to, that you're gonna always live in grace all the time. Because sometimes you don't. That's the reality of it. You're never gonna you have to learn to embrace and accept the incompleteness that you feel. Because if you don't, you're never gonna have joy. You're never gonna have peace. If you don't learn to embrace the fact that you're gonna feel incomplete, you're gonna feel like I, I, I'm not, I still got far. Off, I got, still got a long way to go, and you do. And Jesus knows that. You see, what's incompleteness in a Christian life is normal. The abnormal thing is you expecting to wake up and it to be different. That's abnormal. It ain't gonna be different. It will never be different. The expectation that you will reach a level of completion where you no longer struggle is a lie. 
Are you going to grow the Christian life? Yes. God's going to change you? Yes. But he's never going to bring you to the place where you can say, I no longer need Jesus. But sometimes that's how we live. I don't want to struggle. You're always going to need him. Your Christian life will be lived in this tension. And it's a taste of nothing more. But Pastor Alex, you just don't understand. You don't understand what it's like. If I no longer had that struggle, then I'd be a better Christian. If I no longer had this struggle, then I could serve more. If I no longer had this struggle, I can I can do a lot more things for Jesus if I no longer had these issues in my life. See, see Pastor Alex, I'm different. I'm different, Pastor. If Jesus just takes that away, then I, he can use me. If I no longer had that. And, but here's the thing. If that's, your, if that's what you're thinking, you, he ain't ever going to use you. Because here's the thing. Whenever he frees you from junk, you know what's coming up the road? More junk that he hasn't freed you from yet. He frees you from your junk, and he reveals the junk you still have. You're never going to get to the place where you have no junk. And so if, if you're waiting to be junk-free in order for Jesus to use you, then he ain't ever going to use you. He uses you with the junk. He uses you with the junk in your life. And you have to accept that. He has. <laughs> he has. That's why he went to Calvary. <laughs> because of your junk. You're never going to be without it. Last week, I spoke to some middle school boys about character development. You know, I was excited, nervous. You know, I wanted to go in there. I was going to offer these guys some good advice, some good counsel about making wise decisions and, you know, learning to take personal responsibility at a young age. You know, I was going to share stories about my life and how I messed up, and, and it was going to be good. It wasn't good. I mean, it was bad. To be honest with you, they were not. They wouldn't listen to me, you know, making fun of me. You know, it was. It wasn't what I expected it to be. You know, they would not sit still and listen. And I'm, I was there trying to help them, but they were too busy having their own conversations on the side, too busy doing other things to pay attention. You know, I left that school that day frustrated. Frustrated. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized how I'm just like those middle school boys when it comes to me listening to the gospel and paying attention to the gospel. I'm too busy doing my own thing to sit still and to listen to what the gospel is telling me about the Christian life. And you are too. Too busy doing your own thing to listen to what the gospel is telling us. Too busy trying to do penance for your sins instead of repentance. Too busy living by, just living by what you see and not living by faith. Too busy trying to establish your own righteousness instead of living in the righteousness of Christ. And when you do that, you don't hear the gospel. You're not listening to the gospel. You're having your own conversations on the side. Your penance, living, living by sight, and trying to establish your own sense of righteousness. Paul says in, in Romans 10, brothers, my heart, he's talking about his Jewish brothers here, brothers, my heart's desire 
and prayer for them so that they may be saved. He's talking about the Jews here. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God. See, he says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, for righteousness for everyone who believes. Do you submit to the righteousness that Christ has given you, or do you still try to establish your own? You can have a zeal for God and still not do that. Are you unwilling to submit to his? Your unwillingness to submit to Christ's righteousness is one of the reasons you have no joy. And not willing to submit to that is sin. Not willing to submit to that is sin. If your Christian life consists of doing penance for your sin, if it consists of you living by what you see, if it, it consists of you trying to establish your own righteousness, then you know what you are? You are a narcissist, a Christian narcissist, so self-consumed, so preoccupied with yourself that you can't even see the gospel because it's all about you and you're not healthy. You're not healthy. So the first thing you need to do is not do more stuff. first thing we need to do is just repent of the fact that I'm refusing to embrace the righteousness that he has given me. And that's a good thing. His righteousness, not my own. So we need to repent, and that's the spirit, to move our focus away from ourselves to Jesus. That's what we need to do. We need to move our focus off ourselves, off what we do, off our good works, off of our accomplishments and our failures, successes, and place them on someone else. This is what Paul does. That's the second thing we should expect the Christian life to be, is to be focused on the right person. Verse 12, not that I have already attained this, or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ has made me his own. We're going to go back to what Paul means by I press on, but I want to focus on the reason why he presses on. The reason he presses on is because of what Christ has done. His focus is on Jesus. Now, not on what he does for Jesus. Your focus does make a difference. And so, Paul lived his life in tension, but he also lived his life focusing on the right person and on that person's works. Christ has made Paul his own. That's a passive statement. Because Paul didn't have anything to do with that process. Paul didn't have anything to do with Christ making him his own. Think about it. When Paul, what was Paul going to do as he traveled on the road to Damascus? He was going to kill Christians. <laughs> he wasn't going looking for Jesus. Well, I'm going to go to the tent revival because Jesus is there. No, I'm going to persecute the church. That's where he was going. He was an enemy of the cross. And what happened on the road? Jesus showed up. Who are you, Lord? Jesus. And that day, Jesus made Paul his own. That day, Jesus took hold of Paul, redeemed Paul, saved Paul. And as a result of that, everything that Paul does in his life is a response to what Jesus has already done. It's Christ's finished work. His perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his righteousness that he freely gives to anyone 
who comes to him in saving faith. It's his work, not ours. Philosopher and theologian Francis Schaeffer said, the church needs to function consciously on the basis of the finished work of Christ. Not on the proud basis of any inherent value in itself or any supposed or assumed inherent superiority. Let me read that again. The church needs to function consciously on the basis of the finished work of Christ. Not on the proud basis of any inherent value in itself or any supposed or assumed inherent superiority. And we as individual Christians, we need to live our life the same way. On the basis of the finished work of Christ. Not on the basis of any inherent value in ourselves or in what we do. Or not on the proud basis of any inherent superiority in our culture, in our race, in our gender, in our denominational preference, in our politics, or in our worship, or whatever it is. His work. That's our focus. The finished work of Christ. The moment of your conversion until you breathe your last breath. It's his work. His finished work. This is all your hope and all your peace. What? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's all your righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How are you going to overcome? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How are you going to reach your home in heaven? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's it. To the day you die. So where is your focus? Where is your focus? In the places where you really live, the places where you really, really struggle in life, where is your focus? Is it on his finished work for you, or is it you trying to attain your own righteousness, focusing on what you do? Where is your focus? Everything that we do flows out of what he has done for us. That's it. That's it. If you boast about having the right theology, you know why you had the right theology? Because of Jesus. Not because you went to seminary or read good books. If you serve the poor and, and, and missional, it's not because of you. It's because of Jesus, not because of you. If you think you're a cool person because you come to the village church, you're not. <laughs> you're not. You're not. We're not. Jesus makes you cool. That's it. He makes you cool. Not what you do. Not what we try to achieve. It's Jesus. So if, if anything you think makes you cool and righteous, you need to count it as a loss. Because it's the enemy of the cross. It's the enemy of the gospel. Every time we do that, it's his finished work. One day this week, I uh, picked Madison up from school, and her teacher told me that her and some of her classmates, you know, they were misbehaving and wasn't following directions. Now, the teacher told me this. She told Madison that, Madison, I'm surprised at your behavior, knowing who your dad was. Because, you know... Because I'm a pastor, you know, my kids have to behave a certain way. Now, when she said that, my focus was beginning to shift to the fact that, oh, I'm a failure as a pastor and parent now because my kid had a bad day at school. So I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. I'm a horrible pastor. You see, it don't take much to shift your focus from Jesus. It don't take much. 
but do you recognize it when it happens? Do you recognize it when the focus is beginning to move away to you? And when you see it, what do you do? Repent of it and move on. Our brother and friend, Stephen Birchfield, who is with the Lord now, he wrote many prayers to the Lord, and I had the honor of reading some of those prayers. And one of my favorite ones, One of my favorite ones was this. He says, through the years, may we always be together. Jesus knows me, this I love. Now, I know that the song says, Jesus loves me, this I know. But what Stephen wrote here is so wonderful. Because we sometimes give little thought to the fact that Jesus knows us as well. Jesus knows me, this I love. is another way of saying Jesus has taken hold of me and has made me his own. This I love. You see, Jesus knows you. All your issues, all your junk, all your drama, all your complaining, all your unbelief, all your discontentment, all your self-centeredness. He knows all that stuff about you. He knows the tension that we live in. He knows you're going to fall short. He knows when you leave here today, you're going to probably sin on something that he still accepts you and loves you. And how can you not love that? That he knows me and my junk, and he still accepts me. This I love as a believer. We should love it and rejoice in it and rest in it. You see, Jesus' focus is on his bride. That's you. And your focus needs to be on him. That means you are covered and well taken care of despite your circumstances, despite what you feel. This means you don't have to labor for his affection and his attention. You already have it. He can't give you any more of it. Jesus doesn't love you because of what you do. He loves you for you. He loves you when you fail. He loves you when you struggle spending time in the word. He loves you when you go a week without praying. He still loves you. He knows you're going to struggle. And through his spirit, he lives in every believer. And hey, I mean, let's just be honest about it. Christians, we are kelp people. Do you realize that? Out of all the followers of other religions, Christians are kelp people. Because you don't have to do anything for his affection. You are kelp people. Taken care of. Pampered by God. Because you don't have to earn his favor. He has freely given it to you. Why? Because of Jesus' finished work on the cross for you. That's our focus. And so when Paul focused on that, on Jesus' finished work, it produced in him a passion to press on. It produced in him a fire to press on. Brothers, I don't consider myself to have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He pressed on because of Jesus' finished work. He pressed on to know Jesus and his suffering and his resurrection power. He pressed on in not placing his confidence in the flesh, not trying to establish his own righteousness. He pressed on in trying to live in the righteousness of Christ. But again, he reminds us that even though he pressed on in these things, he never arrived at completion. Do you think Paul had sin in his life? Do you? Because sometimes we, 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 we want to think some of our Christian heroes had no sin. 
Because we focus so much on what they do. Yes. Paul, at the end of his life, said, well, I'm the chief of all sinners. Do you think Paul ever struggled with self-righteousness? Do you? I mean, come on. Man. He's, he, do you think he struggled with that? I mean, just because he said he counted all things are lost, you think he still struggled with having confidence in his flesh? Yes. He's no different than you and I. He's a man. He's a man that was used by God who still has sin in his life. And do you think Paul, every moment of his life, always lived in the righteousness of Christ? Always? Always believed the gospel every day of his life? No, he struggled just like us. He says, to, he, says him, he himself says, no, I have not made it my own. I do not consider that I have made it my own. I have not arrived, brothers, but the one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He didn't live his Christian life in the rearview mirror. Past failures, past successes, past disappointments. He left them behind, constantly moving forward. Those things were not going to be a distraction to him. He's like a runner, focusing on what lies ahead, not the things that's on the side of him or behind him. And that's how we have to live as well. Do you forget things? Are you able to leave things behind? Are you constantly looking in the rearview mirror, constantly looking back? How easily, how easy is it for you to do that, to forget what lies behind? We have to continue to, to strain forward for what lies ahead, our goal, the prize. What is this upward call in Christ Jesus? It's glory. This is Paul longing more for heaven. This is Paul longing more for Jesus to return. This is Paul longing more to see Jesus face to face. You see, our journey through the Christian life is taking us somewhere. You know that, right? We're going somewhere. Our hope isn't to be reincarnated into a cow. Our hope when we're moving toward is glory. That's the finish line. He who began a good work in you will bring it on to completion and build Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in the first chapter of this book. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In the end, you're going to reach your final destination. You're going to get there. Paul says, let those of us who are mature think this way. For Paul, progress in the faith or spiritual maturity is this. You growing in an understanding of how far you still have to go. That's maturity. You've been able to see that. You've been able to see that you're never going to be at a place where you can say, man, I have arrived as a Christian. I'm a super Christian. It's you saying you're never going to be that. Maturity in the Christian life is, is, is seeing more of your sin, not less of your sin. It's you seeing how much you need Jesus, not how little you need him. Gordon Fee says, progress in the faith means to hold steady to our future orientation, that we are a people headed for final glory with Christ himself. Progress in the faith means to hold steady, steady, our future orientation, that we are a people headed to final glory with Christ himself. Do you, do you hold that? Do you hold heaven here steady? 
do you see, is that your focus? Christ's work and also focusing on where I'm headed to glory. That's where I'm going. And Jesus is going to take you there. His hold on you is firm grip. A firm grip. Your standing before the Father is fully established in Jesus. And he does not let you go. Despite what your circumstances say. Despite what the world says. Despite how you feel. He has you. Mark um, used to coach, when he was younger, he used to coach Little League, a Little League baseball team. And he said um, his pitchers, whenever they were getting the jam, you know, he, they would look at him and want him to pull them out because they kept throwing a lot of balls. And he, he told me, he said, I, he never pulled them. And he told them, he says, you'll never, throw, you'll never throw a strike until you're comfortable with throwing balls. Never. You see, we want to throw strikes all our Christian life. I know I do. We got to get comfortable with the fact that you're going to throw a lot of balls. You got to. You're going to throw them. I don't care if you pray that you don't ever do. I don't care if you try to do penance to beat yourself up. You can't change the fact that you live in a fallen world. You're going to throw balls. And Jesus knows you're going to throw balls. He died because of it. And in the midst of it, you do throw strikes. He does give you freedom. He does heal you. He does deliver you. But both are true. Both are true and both have to be embraced. Are you comfortable with throwing balls in your Christian life? Are you? Are you always trying to strike everybody out with a 95 miles per hour curveball or fastball? One way leads to joy and peace. The other one leads to you always being frustrated. No joy, always beating yourself up. Which you going to be? If you can't accept it, ask the Spirit to help you accept the fact I may go a week and throw balls all week. Spirit, help me not to go to a place of despair because of it. Help me to see Christ finished this one. If you go a week and throw strikes, it's still the finish of Christ. So you can't be arrogant and think you're better than everybody else. It's both, people. It's both. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who knows what your people are. You know that we still struggle, Lord, with sin. We fall short. But, Lord, you still love us. You don't ever forsake us. Your word says you are faithful when we are faithless. And that's all the time, Lord. That's, that's, that's it. And I thank you, Father, that we don't have to earn your favor. We don't have to earn your love. You've given it to us. Help us to embrace it and to live in that reality. And as we go out this week, Lord, I pray, Lord, for more joy and more peace and more boldness and confidence in our Christian life because of Christ's finished work. Teach us what it means to live out of that. Teach us how to repent when we're not. So I pray for each and every one of us for protection for our families. I pray that your spirit will continue to strengthen us and mold us into the image of Christ. And I pray as a body, Lord, you would draw us closer together, that we would keep short accounts with one another, that we would truly, truly love one another. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.